It happened in the summer of 1991 as I was sitting in a Major League Baseball stadium watching a game with my wife who was pregnant for the first time. It was just before the seventh inning stretch when God gave us a sign. At that instant, Robin felt our baby kick for the first time, and I knew that it was a message from heaven that the child in her womb was destined to be a ball player. <laughs> now, whether it was baseball or softball, I didn't know yet because, uh, you know, the gender of my child wasn't part of the vision. There was just this revelation of his or her athletic destiny. So that night, as a memorial to this sign from God, I bought one of those miniature souvenir baseball bats for my little slugger. And after Sean was born, I laid the holy bat next to him in his crib, and it gave me such a warm feeling to know that my son had been predestined to play baseball because I love baseball. That was my favorite sport. It was my best sport, and so as you can imagine, um, few things could give me more delight than to have my son love baseball too. As it turned out, he preferred hockey. He thought baseball was boring. Can you believe that? Now, Sean and his wife, Kim, have a one-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Maddie. And one of the things that Maddie, or that Kim, loves to do, she does this with Maddie, is she, goes, she likes to go shopping. And one of her favorite places to go shopping is Target. Um, in fact, she even has a dress code for when she shops at, at Target. She puts on leggings and an oversized sweatshirt, and Maddie rides there in the seat of that red shopping cart while Kim shops. So this last week, I saw this little video of Maddie. <laughs> like mother, like daughter, right? See, what parent is not delighted when their little apple falls not far from the tree? There's just something special about having a child who has some of your characteristics, isn't there? And, and, when, and when they say that they want to be like you in some way or you catch them imitating you, doesn't it warm your heart? Well, what's true of earthly parents is even more true of our Heavenly Father. We who are followers of Jesus are God's children. And He absolutely loves it when His kids want to be just like Him. Imagine his parental joy uh, when the Apostle Paul wrote these words in Ephesians 5.1. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Actually, I prefer the way my old New International Version says it. Be imitators of God, because that's our calling. I mean, uh, when you shrink it down to its most basic form, what, what, what we are all about as Christians and what God is all about as He works in our lives is to help us to, make, to, to become like Him as much as is humanly possible. So who was it that achieved that goal perfectly? Well, Jesus did, right? And now the Scripture says that we are being conformed to Christ's image. And, and as we make progress toward that goal, it puts a proud grin on God's face. Because nothing pleases him more than seeing a little bit of himself in his children. And um, the first 14 verses of Ephesians 5 were written by Paul 
to help us become better imitators of God. I just love the approach that he takes. This passage has three uh, movements, three stanzas, if you will. And in each one, Paul tells us first who we are and then how we should live because of who we are. That's really the structure uh, of the whole book. It's why we've called this series Grace Life, chapters 1 through 3, Grace, the grace that God has poured into our lives. Chapters 4 through 6, life, how we live in light of God's grace. So here in this first half of chapter 5, Paul's going to cycle through that relationship between grace and life three times in quick succession. He starts with grace right there in verse 1 by telling us what we've already thought about this morning in our worship, the fact that we are loved, we're dearly loved by our Father in heaven. Now, if you're a parent, I know that you can relate to that. Tell me that you do not love your kids more intensely than they could possibly imagine. And, and I'll bet that you've tried to tell them, uh, you've tried to somehow transfer that feeling that's in your heart to get it into their heart. You've, you've maxed out your vocabulary in expressing to them just how deeply you love them. But they really don't get it, do they? Well, in the same way, no child of God fully comprehends how deeply he loves them. Now, he says it in as many ways as he can. You know, I have loved you with an everlasting love. As, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is my love for you who fear me. I've demonstrated my love for you in, in, in that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate you from my love. And we say, yeah, I know. But do you really? I know that you get it up here. Do you get it down here? Paul knew how hard it is for some Christians to feel God's love, despite having the proof of it in the fact that Jesus died in our place. I mean, think about it. Greater love has no one this, that they give up their life for their friends. He actually died for us. That's how much he loves us, and, and yet we don't get it. And this is why Paul prayed back in chapter 3, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power. Like this takes supernatural enablement to get this. That you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. There's, there's no way that you can fully comprehend the intensity of God's love for you, but I pray that the Spirit of God will enable you to feel it so that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. See, that's the reservoir out of which we are called to live. That's the grace behind the life that God calls us to. You are loved, so walk in love. As dearly loved children, follow God's example and walk in the way of love. See, love is God's most prominent character trait. And so it should be the characteristic that we as His children are most well known for too. And just like God, we are to show our love not just through our affection, 
through the way that we feel about other people, but through our actions. Verse 2 says, walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us. That's, this is how to do it. Walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I just want to kind of stop and think about that, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What does that mean? Well, it means that God was pleased with that free will offering. Jesus gave that offering, that is to say, He gave His life voluntarily, and God the Father accepted it as sufficient payment for our sins. So, you guys, we are secure in God's love. We, we can be absolutely sure that He is going to welcome us into heaven because of Christ's self-sacrifice. We need not fear death because Jesus already died for us. And now, we are called to love others just as Christ loved us. This is how we know what love is, the Apostle John said. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's that's what love looks like. The cross is the most dramatic and the most accurate picture of love that we will ever see. Now, Paul says, let that one-time ultimate act of love be your template for all of life. Think of the cross as a photograph after which you pattern the video of your life. Love your wife or your husband like that. Love your kids like that. Love your parents like that. Love your neighbors and your coworkers and your classmates like that. Love other Christians like that. Love non-Christians like that. John said it this way, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. In his book, Improving Your Serve, Chuck Swindoll uh, wrote, Shortly after World War II, the saddest sight for American soldiers who were picking up the pieces in ravaged Europe was that of little orphaned children starving in the streets of those war-torn cities. One soldier, driving along in his jeep, spotted a little lad with his nose pressed to the window of a pastry shop. Inside, the cook was kneading dough for a fresh batch of donuts. The hungry boy stared in silence, watching every move. The soldier pulled his jeep to the curb and got out to slip over to the boy's side. Through the steamed-up window, he could see the mouth-watering morsels as they were being pulled from the oven, piping hot. The boy salivated and released a slight groan. The soldier's heart went out to the orphan. Son, would you like some of those? The boy was startled. Oh, yes, would I? The American stepped into the shop, bought a dozen, put them in a bag, and walked back to where the lad was standing in the foggy cold of the London morning. He smiled, held out the bag, and said simply, Here you are. As he turned to walk away, He felt a tug on his coat. The soldier looked back and heard the child ask quietly, Mister, are you God? Then Chuck Swindoll wrote this, We are never more like God than when we give. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. But because of God's grace, we're not only loved, we are also holy. 
Believe it or not, Joe, we talk, you talk about it. It's so hard for me to actually imagine myself being holy. I feel exactly the same way. Really? Uh, I'm holy? But, but verse 3 says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for whom? This is what I'm getting at. These are improper for whom? God's holy people. Or more literally, for saints. If you have a Catholic background... Uh, you know enough about saints to know that you're not one of them, right? Wrong. According to Scripture, every Christian is a saint. Because part of what it means to be in Christ means to be imputed with His holiness. That means that who Jesus is, we are in the eyes of God. Colossians 1 says that once we were alienated from God, And we were his enemies because of our evil behavior. But now he has reconciled us by Christ's physical body through death to present us holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. That's who you are. You are holy. You say, but but you don't know what I've done. No, I don't, but God does. And he is the one who says that your past has been deleted and you're now perfectly pure in His eyes. You are holy. So Paul says, walk in purity. Honor the family name by being holy in real life. How many times have your kids tried to convince you to let them do something because you know, other parents are letting their kids do it, right? Well, everybody else gets to do it. Their parents let them do it. What do, we, what do you say? I don't care what other parents let their kids do. In this family, we don't do that. That's basically what Paul says in this passage. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because, here it is, these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Twice he says, these are things that we in the family of God just don't do. And he gets very specific. There are all kinds of different ways in which we can be unholy, but in his culture and in our culture, sins of a sexual nature are rampant. And so he focuses on that particular aspect of our lives. The four types of sins that he mentions in these verses, if they don't refer exclusively to sexual sin, at least include every form of sexual sin, from the most flagrant act to the most hidden thought. Paul says, first, that sexual immorality is impure. The King James Version uses the term fornication. Uh, it, it really doesn't matter how you translate it. Uh, the Greek word porneia is an umbrella term for all forms of sexual activity other than that which takes place between a legally married man and woman. God's perfect and unchanging plan for sex is to unite one man and one woman in a lifelong, unbreakable bond 
called marriage. And then for those two people to become one flesh in an atmosphere of, of trust and safety. It breaks my heart to think of how many people have been so deeply wounded by not staying within those boundaries, giving their heart away the way that they do and to have it broken because it wasn't in a safe place. See, God so wants us to be fulfilled sexually. Sex is not forbidden or frowned upon in Scripture. It is encouraged. It is celebrated. In fact, it's even commanded. But it is blessed by God only when it stays within the boundaries that He has established for our own good. Hear me. Sex outside of marriage is always sin. Specifically, fornication includes premarital sex, adultery, which is sex with someone other than your spouse, incest, and homosexual behavior. All of these are clearly forbidden by God, both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament that Jesus endorsed. As common as some of these behaviors are in our culture and as accepted as they are, And as encouraged as they are, and as celebrated as they are, Paul says they are improper for God's holy people. But it's not just unlawful sexual intercourse that we must avoid. Other forms of sexual gratification are also impure. That word impurity in verse 3 is almost always used in a sexual context, and Paul says that for us there must not be even a hint of any kind of impurity. Our flesh, that part of us that is still in rebellion against God, is constantly looking for any kind of provision. Okay, so oh, maybe sex outside of marriage is wrong, but what about... And you can fill in the blank with all kinds of things that go on among people who, for whatever reason, have drawn their line just short of sexual intercourse. They may justify other forms of sexual expression between two people or something that is done alone. There are all kinds of ways in which we are being told by our culture that it is perfectly legitimate, that in fact it is healthy to fulfill our sexual needs. And so we wonder, well, is is this okay? If you have to ask, and if you're embarrassed to do it out loud, Paul's answer is probably going to be no. Among you, there must not be even a hint of any kind of sexual impurity because it's improper for God's holy people. Then he takes it a step further. He says that sexual coveting is impure. The word is actually translated greed, in verse 3, there must not be even a hint of greed, and, and naturally we think of greed for money or for possessions, and often the word does refer to that kind of greed, and it's definitely sinful. But more generally, the word just means to have an insatiable desire to get what belongs to someone else. It's often translated covet. What's the 10th commandment? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on anything that belongs to your neighbor. So even if Paul is not talking exclusively about sexual greed, that is one form of covetousness that's improper for God's holy people. 
The Darby translation calls it unbridled lust. It's not occasional temptation that Paul is talking about, but an ongoing, intensifying, impure thought process that occurs when lust morphs into covetousness. Think of King David on his roof, refusing to avert his gaze when he sees Bathsheba bathing. That kind of greed is improper for God's holy people. See, God doesn't just care about what we do. He also cares about what we think. And for that matter, what we say. Verse 4, nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. I love the paraphrase that says, thanksgiving is our dialect. But sexual speech is is impure. That word obscenity could also be translated filthiness. And foolish talk and coarse joking are two other forms of sexually impure speech. One commentator says, all three refer to a dirty mind expressing itself in dirty conversation. To talk that way is to trivialize and glorify sins that are very serious in God's eyes. How serious? Well, look at verses 5 and 6. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, that is, they've made sex their God, and no one whose life is characterized by those sins that are listed in verse 3 and repeated here in verse 5, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Oh, others may say that it's no big deal, that you can sin with impunity as long as you believe in Christ. But Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. It's very sobering, isn't it? Paul says that if you practice these sins habitually, so much so that they define who you are, you will not inherit God's kingdom. Instead, you will suffer His wrath. You will not go to heaven. You will go to hell. Now, I don't think that Paul is warning us his children, of the possibility of losing our salvation. What he's saying is that we always reveal who we are by how we live. Jesus said it this way, a tree is recognized by what? By its fruit. If, if, we are, if, if there are apples on the tree, guess what kind of tree it is, right? If, if, if we're God's holy people, if His Holy Spirit lives in us, that's going to be apparent in our behavior. It doesn't mean that true Christians are always as pure in real life as they are in God's eyes, but it does mean that we are becoming progressively more of who God says we are. And if we get off track, God has His ways of getting us back on track. He disciplines those He loves, Hebrews 12 says. That is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep or have died, Paul says, to Corinthian backsliders. When we are judged by the Lord, this is, this is from Hebrews 12, when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Do you understand what that means? It means that God sees us walking closer and closer to that edge where this is really who you are. This is what defines your behavior. 
this immoral activity is who you are. He sees us getting closer and closer to that, and he has his ways of trying to push us back from that edge. And if we persist in our rebellion, he will go so far as to cut off our earthly life, if that's what it takes, to make sure that we don't become that kind of a person. That's how committed he is to our salvation. And Hebrews 12 says, if you're, if you're not disciplined, then you're not true sons and daughters of God at all. Because we only discipline our own kids, not other people's kids. God's the same way. So these unbelievers are the people that Paul is talking about in verses 5 and 6. They are people who disprove their claim to be Christians by living in unrepentant and undisciplined disobedience. They will experience God's wrath. Therefore, Paul says in verse 7, don't be partners with them. For, verse 8, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That's the third statement about who we are in Christ. We are enlightened. In Scripture, light symbolizes uh, two different things, mainly. First, it symbolizes purity. The idea is that we are most at home in daylight, not in darkness. Through Christ, we have been freed from slavery to those sins that are normally committed um, out of public view. But secondly, and I think this is actually more prominent in Scripture, light symbolizes understanding. Um, Paul says that before we met Christ, our, this is what he said in this passage we studied last week in chapter 4, that before our minds were empty, dark, and ignorant, but now we have 20-20 spiritual eyesight. The lights have been turned on. We can see what is true because the Spirit of God enables us to understand the Word of God. You've heard of IQ? We have SQ, a, a, a spiritual quotient. We, we, we have the ability to understand things that we didn't used to understand because we can only understand them with the help of the Spirit who now lives in us. See, we're children of light, and so Paul says in verse 8, live as children of light. In other words, walk in the truth you now possess. Okay, what does that mean practically speaking? Three things. First, do what you know is right. Four, verse nine, the fruit of light, that is the result of letting Scripture shape your behavior, is that you will exhibit a life consisting of goodness, righteousness, and truth. A friend of mine once told me about his younger brother who worked in a Christian refugee camp. His responsibility was to be the camp postmaster. So every day he would walk from his tent to this little post office, and on the way he would pass another tent that was home to many young boys, all of whom had leprosy. Um, he would wave to the boys, say hello every time he passed by. But one day as he was walking past, he felt the Holy Spirit nudge him to stop and spend a little time with one of the boys. It was consistent with what he knew about his calling to live a life of love. So he obeyed that prompting. He went over and talked for a while with this, with this boy, um, his, his, this little guy's face and his, his hands were dis, you know, severely disfigured. And then just before he left, this man felt another prompting, this time to give the boy a hug. And again, he obeyed. And when he let go, there were tears streaming down the boy's cheeks. 
The next day, he stopped to see that boy again, and as soon as he walked in the tent, all of the other boys got into a line, single file. He asked his new friend what they were doing, and the boy whispered, they all want a hug. See how that guy bore the fruit of goodness by simply obeying Scripture that the Spirit highlighted in his mind. This is the way that children of light are supposed to live. But walking in the truth also involves growing in discernment. Paul says it this way in in, in verse 10, find out what pleases the Lord. That, That word or the verb that's translated find out could also be translated discern. It's a word that was used sometimes of testing precious metals for impurities by heating them up. See, as the metals melted down, that which is pure was separated from that which was of little or no value. So, you know, Paul's telling us to to do the same thing, to to discern, to separate what what is good from what is not not of value. How How do we do that? Well, we do it by the renewing of our mind. Here's why I say this. Because the same verb that Paul uses here in Ephesians 5 is used in Romans 12, 2, which says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve. That's, that, those words, test and approve, single verb in Greek, the very same word that is used in Ephesians 5. Then you will be able to discern what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So the more that we renew our mind, and how do we do that? Well, primarily by reading and studying and meditating on Scripture. That's what renews our mind. As we grow in biblical knowledge, we have more spiritual truth to draw from in what would otherwise be confusing situations. You may wonder, how long do I have to study the Bible before I get all the truth I need to live my life well? Well, I I guess I would say that it takes a minute to learn and a lifetime to master. I mean, we immediately know, as soon as we start following Jesus, that our life is supposed to be a life of love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two greatest commandments, Jesus says. Everything else can be boiled down to that. But then, the longer that we live as Christians, the more and more specific um, this gets. I've been studying the Bible for, I think it's been about 42 years now, and I still, I mean this sincerely, I still feel like a beginner. I'm thinking, man, I'm going to die before I really understand this book. I, I taught Ephesians for the first time when I'd been a Christian for 15 years, and I studied hard. But now, I'm teaching it again 26 years later, and I'm embarrassed by some of the things that I said way back then. If I happen to teach it again in 26 more years, I'm only going to be 88 by then, so I probably can, but I'll, I know, I'll be shaking my head at how little I knew back in 2023. See, learning how to live a life that pleases God is um, an exciting, lifelong process that never gets old and never gets boring. There's one more way in which God wants us to walk in His truth, and I'm warning you, this one's going to be uncomfortable. You go, I've already been uncomfortable today. I can, I can handle this. Okay, here it is. We need to expose what we know is wrong. Verses 11 through 13, 
talk about an aspect of walking in the truth that I've had different opinions about at different times in my life. Here's what the text says. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. Now, we're going to see why that's important in a minute, but let's just wrestle with this question of what it means to expose other people's sin. That's what Paul's telling us to do. What does that mean? What what exactly are we supposed to do? Well, didn't Paul already tell us back in verses 8 and 9, live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So it seems to me that the primary way in which God calls us to expose sin is by our contrasting lifestyle. A holy life makes other people feel uncomfortable, unholy, doesn't it? And it's shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret, so that seems to indicate that we're not supposed to talk about their sin, just to expose it silently by the way we live. There's just one problem with that interpretation. The word that Paul uses, the word that is translated here, expose, can also be translated, depending on the context, rebuke, admonish, or correct. And the vast majority of the times this word is used in the New Testament, it refers to verbal confrontation. It's the word that's used in Matthew 18, where Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. That's the same Greek word. Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen, you have won them over. If they listen, if they listen, right? If they listen to what you say, you've won them over. It's the word that Paul used when he told Timothy to preach the word. Correct, rebuke, same word. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Uh, Peter used the word when he referred to the Old Testament passage in which Balaam was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey who, he said, spoke with a human voice. It's the word that's used in Luke 3 when John the Baptist rebuked Herod, an unbeliever, because of his adulterous marriage to his brother's wife, and the text says, and all the other evil things he had done. He rebuked him. And in Revelation 3, after God told the church in Laodicea that they were lukewarm and that he was about to spit them out of his mouth, he said, those whom I love, I rebuke. Same word. And discipline. So be earnest and repent. So I really can't wiggle free from the idea that an imitator of God must be willing to expose sin verbally. And I think, well, how do I do that without even mentioning what the disobedient do in secret? That's, that's tough. The thing is, in other passages, Paul himself does mention what the disobedient do in secret, but he never goes into lurid detail. So I take it that we are to say no more than that which is absolutely necessary to expose the sin. And typically we are to do it privately, although there are situations in which we are supposed to do it publicly. For example, Jesus said uh, that if a private conversation with a Christian brother or sister who's in sin doesn't elicit repentance, we're to take one or two others along and confront them a second time. And he said, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. 
And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Man, that's a serious process that I would never want to enter into without first examining myself to make sure that my life was as convicting to them as my words. You may wonder, why would anyone do something like this? Well, the reason why is because it's part of living a life of sacrificial love. If you love someone, of course you're going to warn them when they're in danger. And we've already seen how much danger people living a sinful life are in. A Christian who is living in sin is, da- is in danger of severe discipline from God. A non-Christian who is living in sin is in danger of worse, the wrath of God. And, and we are commanded to expose sin in order to rescue those that we love from disaster and to help them to experience the grace of God that will come rushing into their lives when they confess and repent of their sin. And that may well happen. See, we fear the worst, but Paul hopes for the best. See it in the last part of verse 13? Everything that is illuminated by what? By our exposure of that sin. Everything that is illuminated becomes a light. The Living Bible says, but when you expose them, the light shines in upon their sin and shows it up. And when they see how wrong they are, some of them may even become children of light. That's the hope with which we tiptoe into uncomfortable conversations. It's not easy to be an imitator of God, is it? It involves living a life of sacrificial love, staying clean in a filthy culture, and letting God's truth transform us and convict others through us. It's a high calling, but you're up to it. After all, you're a deeply loved, holy, enlightened child of God who has been flooded with His grace and filled with His Spirit. Which is not to say you're perfect. In fact, you may feel more imperfect than ever after this message. The Spirit of God may have put a spotlight on something in your life that is improper for a son or daughter of God. If so, I encourage you just to admit it. 1 John 1, 9, uh, Joe quoted it earlier today. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. That promise is for every single one of us, including those who are not yet Christians. If that's you, if there's never been a point in your life when you have made a U-turn, see, the Scripture says we've all been going the wrong direction, but we need to make a U-turn. The Bible's word for it is repentance. You need to repent and believe in Jesus. Believe that He died for you on the cross, for your sins, and then He rose from the dead. If you've never made that, that change in your life, that U-turn in your life, if you've never personally decided that you are going to accept Christ's sacrifice for you, um, you can do it right now. The lyrical invitation that Paul gives in verse 14 probably comes from an ancient hymn, and it is God's word to you today. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that
at the moment that your spirit um, raised us from the dead, the light of Christ, the light of his forgiveness shone on us. Thank you so much, Lord, that we are holy, that you are delighted in us as you look at us because you see Jesus in us. Thank you that we are deeply loved by you. Thank you that you've given us everything that we need to actually live that way in, a, in our everyday lives. And we pray that um, whatever it is that you said to us personally today, that you would help us not to let go of it, not to forget it, but to continue to think about it and to continue to let it shape our behavior so that this week we're a little more like Jesus than we were last week. In his name we pray, amen.